You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. Welcome to Understanding Disordered Eating, Episode 2. Today, we sit down with Meredith Glidden, who is a licensed creative arts therapist and psychoanalyst. She is a psychotherapist with a private practice in New York City and works with adolescents and adults and a specialty in substance use. Meredith has presented about the intersections of psychoanalysis and creative arts therapies. She is a board member for the Institute for Expressive Analysis, where she also serves as their director of admissions. I don't think that introduction does Meredith any justice, so let her speak for herself. So today we're talking about psychoanalysis, or really the introduction to psychoanalysis, and I know that this is a treatment approach, but my hope is that we can talk about it together so that people can understand it and use a lot of these ideas to better understand their life more deeply understand the way that they interact with people, the way that they behave, et cetera. So I guess my first question is a pretty obvious question for you, Meredith. (laughs) What is psychoanalysis? Well, I think you already nailed it right there. I think in kind of in pop culture and the way that we think about psychoanalysis is that we think of it in this like very classical Freudian sense where a patient is laying on the couch and, and that it is strictly a methodology of, of therapy, which it certainly is. Um, but psychoanal- psychoanalysis in psychoanalytic thinking certainly extends well beyond, I think, a clinical space. And that essentially what it is, is taking the time to reflect on both our conscious and unconscious minds and how they interact and essentially lead us to the behaviors and engagement with other people in our lives. It's it's a much deeper way, both in a clinical sense of working with a patient in a day-to-day sense. Psychoanalysis, psychoanalytic thinking is a deeper way of looking at your own impulses. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like you're saying whatever's going on today is the surface and psychoanalysis is a way of getting under the surface what's going on with the unconscious mind or your past experiences or or all the things that we're going to talk about soon that are driving your current behaviors. Let's get to the root of it. Absolutely. So I frequently use this metaphor when consulting with a, a patient for the first time, if they have come to my practice, found me through or referred to me and maybe don't know about psychoanalysis or really of what psychoanalytic work would look like. I use the metaphor of if you have a wound on your arm, let's say the easiest thing that we can do is slap a bandaid on it. Right. And that um, that's going to hold it for a little bit and it's going to help a little bit, but pretty soon we're going to actually need to change that bandaid again. And each day we're going to have to keep slapping, slapping, slapping band-aids on it because we're not addressing actually what is causing the wound. And I want to be clear, it is so important also to have band-aids. We need band-aids. We need to, we need them. We, I'm an analyst. I use band-aids, right? Like that we need them to be able to put one foot in front of the other to keep going, right? But if we don't go in and actually look at the wound um, and figure out what is causing that wound in the first place, 
you're going to spend your entire life having to deal with throwing band-aids on this. Psychoanalysis is us going in. It's us going deeper and looking. So like the wound, the unconscious, right? Like of going in and figuring out what is causing it in the first place. The goal then, if we can heal it from there, if we can understand it and understand what's going on, we don't have to keep using band-aids nearly as much. And that part takes more work, right? It takes a commitment. It takes really showing up, but clearly I'm biased because I'm an analyst. It's worth it. I think that type of work, that type of thinking is worth it in the end. Yeah, totally. And I might add that it's absolutely terrifying because there's a reason why you're behaving the way that you're behaving. And why would we want to look at that? That sounds terrible. It's completely (laughs) terrifying. I think that's the other reason why unlike other types of therapy, CBT, DBT, which tend to, you know, you can call one of those types of therapists and almost in some cases, like get a guarantee of like 15 sessions, you're going to feel better. This type of work, because it's scary, exactly what you just said, because it's scary, because it can feel really vulnerable, really raw, we have to go slow. And which for some people is really tough. And because, and I certainly have felt this too. I want it fixed now. I want to feel better now. That's also not the way the unconscious works and our drives work. So yeah, Yeah, again, it's like this, it's a, it's such a gift to yourself, but it's a, it can be like a pretty vulnerable commitment. Yeah, absolutely. So I think you kind of alluded to this when you were saying this before, but in terms of the difference between psychoanalysis and basically every other kind of therapy, what would you say that is? Is it mostly just like the long-term versus the short-term? Is there anything else that you can think of that makes it different? It's a good question. I hold these types of work really pretty in pretty different places in my head. And that's not to say, again, that there aren't parts of my work with certain patients who need it, that we are you know, working through here's some deep breaths or, or here's how to let, you know, progressive. Yeah. There's room for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is. And we don't have to hold so rigidly in a very classical sense to what I think, you know, this idea of what psychoanalysis was in bygone days. I think the biggest difference for me is that this is really deep work. It is not saying to a patient, I have, or even living your life, right? If we're, if we're talking about this outside the clinical like room of, I have this feeling come up and I now know how to take deep breaths to calm myself down again, deep breaths, super important. It is about, it is, it is the depth of the work. It is the depth of thinking about your own experiences and what may be driving it. I always ask patients if um, we're talking about panic, if we're talking about something that came up, something that was particularly difficult. I, I always tell them that I'm interested, obviously, in what that's feeling like. I'm actually more interested in what happened 20 minutes before this, before the symptom came up, right. Or I'm, uh, or what happened earlier in the day, because I want that information because it isn't just about that uh, moment of panic, that moment of, um, and then all of a sudden I was yelling at my husband and I don't know why it's like, all right, let's back up. Let's, let's, let's again, like look, look under and, and see what led up to it. Yeah. I really understand why this is happening as opposed to just trying to change it. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think it might be helpful actually, you know, before I get into that, very often we hear the term psychodynamic psychotherapy. Would you say mm-hmm. that there's a difference between that and analytic therapy 
if there is a difference, what's the difference? Like, uh, you yeah, know, people use it interchangeably. Uh, you know, and I think we would get into, uh, they are used interchangeably a lot. And I think it, it, we could get into some like really nitty gritty stuff that psychoanalysis is done, is performed by someone who is licensed or uh, um, went through a specific training program in psychoanalysis. Um, psychodynamic therapy certainly uses and certainly is depth work for sure. And it uses a lot of the same um, ways of looking at problem behaviors that come up that psychoanalysis does. Psychodynamic therapy can, can typically is done, you know, usually one time a week, whereas psychoanalysis is done typically more two times, three times, sometimes four times a week of a patient really coming in. So there's not a lot of room for cat or there's not a uh, there's not a, there doesn't have to be so much time dedicated to catch up, right. Of catch up of tell me about what happened during your week and the office drama and all of this stuff, which I will say again, is incredibly important. And I always want to hear that from my patients too, but specifically psychoanalytic work happening more frequently during a week, typically it just keeps the momentum going. Yeah. So you're saying the point of psychoanalysis is not so much to kind of keep someone stable or figure out how they can, I don't know, decrease their symptoms, which is always important. More so it's about trying to understand the their life on a pretty general level. How did it come to be that they were the way that they are? And these yeah. are, you know, ironically, the most quote healthy individuals are in analysis, you know, because, well, I guess this is a gross generalization. But people who are not necessarily looking for a fix me sort of solution, they're like, I want to really understand the intricacies of my life. Yeah, I'm sure you have actually come across this too. When I have suggested to a patient of going from one time to two time a week or, you know, increasing sessions, um, typically the first reaction is like, oh, my God, do you think I'm so ill or something is so wrong that I need to come more. And my response is always, no, I, it's because I think you're healthy enough to do this because I think you're yeah. healthy enough and your ego is strong enough and you are less penetrable, right. Um, mm -hmm. uh, to able, able to look more deeply at some of this work. Yeah. Um, and I think this is also one of the stigmas, uh, you know, with therapy and specifically analysis is that it's archaic. It's for people who are really ill. And the work that we do is actually quite the opposite. Yes. So it's, it's kind of interesting how the stigma came to be that it's exactly untrue. It's as, a, it's as untrue as it gets. Absolutely. You and I both work in a very contemporary frame of psychoanalysis, right? And that it, for us, it isn't so yes, I, I have some people who use the couch um, or have dabbled in using the couch because it just happens to be more comfortable. Um, for one patient, <laughs> for one patient, yes. <laughs> um, and and uh, for others, because the gaze back and forth is is too overwhelming, right? But in a really modern, you know, like contemporary form of psychoanalysis and and in psychodynamic work, we are just humans in the room, and it is about the relationship. And it looks much different, I think, than a lot of people assume psychoanalysis would look. Yeah, it's not all about like sex and libido and I don't know, no. being attracted to your mom or something. No, totally. Like that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's pretty alienating stuff, isn't it? 
It's it's so creepy. Oh, um, so let's talk about some of the foundations of psychoanalysis. I think it might be helpful to delve a little bit deeper for for some listeners. Okay. Um, something that you've mentioned before, which is pretty foundational, is the unconscious mind. So first of all, when you when you say the unconscious mind, what what are you referring to? What do you, what do you mean? That's a really big one. You know our conscious mind is really essentially like what is on the surface, right? The unconscious mind is what is uh, underneath, but I believe holds so, so, so much information. It is what drives a lot of our behaviors. I think it is it what it is what drives the way we interact with people in our lives. And if we take the time and get a bit more in touch with our unconscious mind, man, can it tell us a a lot. And I think that's essentially what we are as analysts, even do even doing psychodynamic work is we're trying to teach our patients how to, or even just people in our lives, how to tap into that more unconscious um, of like, I don't know why, I don't know why, but I always just do this. Or I don't know why, but this guy really, really bugs me saying like, Oh, that's interesting. Okay, great. Your conscious mind is recognizing that this guy is really like always gets on your nerves. Let's, you know, this is something else we'll probably talk about. Let's free associate on what comes up for you um, when thinking about this person. Um, those are the things that I think the unconscious mind holds. Um, and I know you believe this too. Like that's where the gold is, right? Like that's where the. Yeah, it's basically, our- you know, I use the, the metaphor. I love the banded one. The love the metaphor of to describe this sort of thing is being in the driver's seat or the passenger seat, or even the back seat sometimes. And where the unconscious mind is in the driver's seat right now, we are aware of what's going on because we're sitting in the car, but we don't really have access to the steering wheel. And when we gain access by, you know, it, we'll talk a little bit about how do you gain access to it. Um, but by gaining access to it, then you can be in the driver's seat. You can make much more deliberate decisions in your life. So I love yeah, I, that. yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I'm I made it up it. myself, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so I, just because you had just said this before, what, what is free association? Cause I think that is a pretty big one too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So free association in like a very, I think kind of traditional sense is that a person in therapy is encouraged to verbalize or even not in a session, somebody with a journal or um, writing down or a computer of real of writing down, verbalizing all of the thoughts that come to mind, right? Um, which then can feel pretty overwhelming of like, what do you, what do you mean? What do you, you just want me to start talking? Um, I think then of reminding yourself, patients, if you're working with them, that it doesn't, it's not free association. It's not a linear thought pattern. It is really in some ways, the more random, the more top of the mind that comes up, the better. And if just sitting and free associating is too overwhelming, which it is for a lot of people, or even for yourself sitting in a room by yourself, a technique a lot of times analyst therapists use is somebody, I will listen carefully for a particular word that somebody has has shared in a a session that might catch my ear um, of, I felt really vulnerable and saying like, oh, okay. You know, a few, a few minutes ago, you said the word vulnerable. What is I'm just curious, what does that mean to you? Um, 
what does that bring up? Does it bring up any memories? Does it bring up and and then I it gives them a bit of a launching off point into letting their mind just go. Reassociation is really spontaneous. It's actually really uh, Winnicott, uh, a really famous formative anal- psychoanalyst. We're going to be nerding out now. Yeah, no, here we are. <laughs> I will only nerd out for just a second that he would consider it actually an act of play, right? And that doesn't totally. mean that we're up and doing something like playful in the sense that a child is, but that we are allowing ourselves the spontaneity, the playfulness, just to let our minds go and wander where, where it will. Um, and that is how we also get more in touch with our, the unconscious drives and the unconscious, uh, our unconscious mind and what's happening. Yeah. Because our mind is going to take us where it wants to go Yeah, when we don't control it. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's the hope, right? I mean, some, all, all people have, you know, defenses set in place, um, that I think work really well sometimes for some people to kind of protect against some of that, but then the more we practice it, the more spontaneous, the more playful we can get with it. I was doing air quotes there that the, the richer the material that can come out. Yeah. And so, you know, similarly in therapy, when someone is free associating, you can, like you said before, when someone's journaling, it can do the same thing. It's not like a, I need to figure out what's going on. It's just kind of like almost brain dump, if you will. Yes, yes, yes. And that this again is not something that is just happening in a clinical space, right? I, I, I think that's also the goal of us talking here today is that this is a way of thinking that can be helpful I mean, you and I are pretty biased, right? But like for the masses, like this is a, this, and and it is, it is so people are so deserving of having this type of deep reflection, even on their own. Yeah. Yeah. So you almost like open a can of worms. I'm going to just go with it. The defenses. This is a huge topic. Um, We can probably go on for days about it. So let's just maybe scratch the surface a little bit. First of all, when you say defenses, what what is it? What do you mean? So um, technically, what a defense or defense mechanism, sometimes they're called, is that it's essentially something that safeguards our mind are against unwanted feelings and thoughts that might be too difficult to cope with. It may, Freud really said that anything that would cause anxiety, um, feeling anxious feels awful. We, uh, we've all felt that it feels so terrible. And so we will do things. Our brains take excellent care of us, actually, like really, really wonderful care of us. And they will really turn a lot of tricks in order to protect us from uh, uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. Defenses and defense mechanisms, I will say, I think get a really bad rap too. Um, And they aren't all bad. We use these day in and day out all the time. And I use them, you use them. Sometimes we're conscious of them, sometimes we're not. And some are more, quote unquote, healthy, evolved than others. So you're saying that sometimes it's, you know, to protect us from whatever it is, anxiety, fill in the blank. 
other times, you know, maybe, or maybe it's always protective, but sometimes it's actually part of life and we're not even looking to change it because yes. it's quote normal or quote totally. Healthy. Yes. There's, um, I love, there's a defense mechanism called sublimation. I love this one. Um, sublimation is essentially the best way to think about it is somebody who's really angry and, and walks around with so much anger and they become a football player or they end up going to kickboxing class and then feel better. It is that sublimation is taking one feeling and channeling it into a healthy outlet. And again, it's one of these things that if we stop and think about it, you know, we have friends and family members who are like, oh my God, I love this, whatever, kickboxing class, exercise class, things like that. And I don't know why I just feel so much better after, um, of taking the time and saying like, why does that make me feel so much better? Right. Um, again, these are like little pieces that you can do in just your everyday life. Yeah. So what would be an example of, and I'm going to use air quotes again here with, uh, an more unhealthy defense, something that we would potentially want to get rid of um, or, or challenge, not necessarily. Yeah. Positive. Yeah. Right. 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 Or just like ones that maybe don't serve. I think a, a way to think about them too. So uh, ones that aren't serving somebody in the best way possible that are like more maladaptive um, ones that come to my mind. So denial, right. Of we see this a lot in substance use denying that, that there is an issue it's, it's a way to avoid dealing with everyday, like painful feelings. Right. So a, another example would be a husband who may refuse to see that his wife is having an affair, right. Even though that the writing is on the wall, right. Acting out is another, I would say more maladaptive defense mechanism. Their dissociation, which would be, I all of a sudden, and we've all done this too, like the feeling dissociations feeling it's on like lots of different levels, but this feeling of driving or walking and all this in your, your, your mind is someplace else. And all of a sudden you're like, I don't, I somehow I'm home and I don't actually remember this full drive, right? Is, is, we could argue is a form of dissociation. Um, there are definitely more pathological layers or, or levels of dissociation. Yeah. than just not remembering your drive home. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and then there is one I was going to say I like, <laughs> but this it, one um, is my favorite. This one is my favorite. Uh, no, actually, I think sublimation is my favorite. This one definitely is, would be considered a more unhealthy uh, defense mechanism. It's called reaction formation. Um, and I'm going to, again, try not to geek out here too much. Reaction. Yeah, formation but that's a good one a, to talk about, though. It's essentially feeling that you feel so opposed and please jump in here and help. And if you have a better definition of this, you feel so opposed to a certain feeling, um, a certain way of being that you actually switch and become the opposite. Uh, I have a patient currently who really engaged in this a lot, really as a child, um, still to this day and that she would accommodate others so profoundly that, um, it led to her playing games. She didn't want to play when she was growing up to taking on the interests of her parents or of other friends, even though she didn't like it or want to, that something was so felt so profoundly wrong to her, but that 
she didn't feel that she could, that that was an acceptable way of feeling that she then on her unconscious mind flipped it and that she actually became very pretend pretended enacted in a way that she was so profoundly interested in what her parents were, were doing or what her friends were doing. Yeah. I mean, very often this happens with like perfectionists whose life was pretty chaotic and they want things to be just so, mm-hmm. um, or even this That's is a great way yeah, to describe This is it. one that people sometimes do consciously, but if, you know, let's say they were always late as a kid, cause their parents just were always running late. They'll be so anal about being way early, um, which again is pretty conscious, but, but yeah, this, uh, this is also just another way for us to try to understand why someone is the way that they are. And if they're doing something that doesn't necessarily serve them, is the, is there something that's completely the opposite that's underneath here that just doesn't feel so tolerable to accept? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so another, you know, going back to the foundations of analysis, another thing that I think is really important is dreams. Can you talk mm. a little bit more, a, a little bit more about how this is yeah. uh, significant? I love dreams. I love dream work. I love my patients' dreams. I love my dreams. I'm actually a weirdo who likes hearing dreams of people like at parties and things. Um, oh, stop. <laughs> I really do. I really do. I, it's like probably the only time I feel like I wear my like professional hat in my personal life. If, if someone starts talking about dreams, I'm, I'm all ears usually. Yeah. You've written so, some pretty cool stuff on dreams. I don't know how cool it was, but I also have become very interested in my own dreams of my patients um, and using those as, and this is a whole different topic we don't have to get into, but using those actually as almost like super, as like supervisory information, right? Like what is being held totally. in my unconscious, unconscious about my patients that it's only coming out in dreams. So dreams, uh, Freud classically said that dreams are the royal road to the unconscious, um, which again is like a slightly alienating phrase. Our dreams are our, but it's also kind of a genius phrase. I think our, our dreams are, are, is just an exercise of our unconscious mind um, and hold so, so much information in um, what we are processing in our day to day lives. We look for metaphors. We look for symbols. We look for, um, people that show up in our dreams. I am not a fan, I will say, of these this idea of you could go to, you know, Amazon or Barnes and Noble or something and find like a dream bible of like if you dream of money, if you dream of teeth or you know like it this is what it means. I don't believe that because what teeth is a funny example. I don't know. Like what teeth mean to me means something different to you. What my me dreaming yeah. of my mom is different than you or X, Y, and Z dreaming of their mom. We have to look at what those images that come up in their dream or what the storyline is, what it means specifically to them. It is dreams are also a really great way to facilitate a a patient to, or a person at all. If you're thinking, if you're in your own home, thinking about your dreams of free associating, right? Yeah. And just so kind of trying to make sense of something that is a weird thing that happened in your dream to free associate and just see what comes to mind, the brain dump thing, and then see where that takes you. And it usually ends up somewhere pretty interesting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they say, I will say this, uh, this idea of a dream Bible, 
um, I don't buy it, that one image in dreams typically does mean the same thing for every person. And it's that if you dream of a house, you're, that is your, you, the, the house in your dream is your mind, right? Is your psyche. Um, and a lot of times if there is a house dream, that's a pretty fun way to kind of jump into the exploration of it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking that we should probably do a separate episode on dreams because we can talk about this literally all day. I know, There's I know. So I was much say, to it. You could go to the basement if you're having a dream and it's the basement of a house. Like, dear God, like, uh-huh. hello, that is your unconscious. What's down in yes, the basement? Yes, it's perfect. You know? Yes, <laughs> that's what it's we amazing. get excited about. <laughs> yeah, that's, I know. What weirdos. <laughs> yeah. So then the the last thing I was thinking about, again, going back to the foundations of analysis is transference. And I know that this is a, a term that maybe a lot of therapists use. Yeah. It's become a little bit po- more part of a therapeutic vocabulary, but, you know, not to be snobby, but it originated in analysis. So first of all, for if, if it's a new term to someone, what is, mm-hmm. what is transference? And then why is it significant to this process? Yeah. Transference then like, if we're going to give a kind of boring uh, definition of it. It's, it's a, it's a phenomenon in therapy. I want to be very clear though, too, transference happens in our day-to-day lives as well. It doesn't just happen in a therapeutic setting is where we take the feelings of us, a person and put them on somebody else. Really classically, the classic, classic example is that we are formative, our most uh, formative primary caregiver. So typically for most people as mom and dad, we transfer them onto other people. And again, most classically notably is that in a therapeutic setting, we are transferring unconsciously our feelings about our parents onto the therapist. But again, this happens. We do this in our day-to-day lives as well. Yeah. So how is this idea of transference, the the idea that we kind of relate to other people as we related maybe to our parents, um, to put it in an overly simplistic way, mm-hmm. how is that, uh, how can we use that to understand more about ourselves? It's a good question. Um, I think it helps once we recognize this, that the transference is happening, it helps us recognize old patterns, right? And, and old, even maybe wounds that we had of, uh, with our primary formative caregivers in a clinical setting. So in a, in a therapeutic setting, we actually want transference to happen, right? Because I think, again, you and I work in a very contemporary way and that I really believe that it's the relationship that heals, right? It is the relationship that we build that is the reparative experience. So if you come in, you, any person comes in and are transferring onto me as the clinician, mom stuff, dad stuff, sister, like whatever it is, I get to take that in, hold it, understand it with you. And that we then can have a different experience together. And it's that experience in our relationship that is going to offer the relief, the healing, the understanding of deeper unconscious patterns that you're engaging in. Yeah. An example that comes to mind is when there's a patient who gets really angry at something that I did 
whether it's warranted or not. And a typical response when someone gets angry at another person is to kind of lash out well, you know, and, and just kind of get angry back at that person. Yeah. And as an analyst, we kind of sit there and almost take it and try to understand it a little bit more, which yeah. is kind of what you were alluding to, to becoming a little bit more of a reparative experience um, as opposed to a blow up. Absolutely. Because how important it would be for for certain people to then not have the mom figure, whoever it is, yell back, right? But of saying like, oh my, I hear you. I hear you. I see you. And that this is really painful for you. Instead of me blowing up or having or bringing my own ego into this, let's actually look at really what feelings you're sitting with and really what's going on for you. Yeah. Another thing that I'm thinking about is this idea of blank slate. Um, you know, we get we get so much flat for this. You're not allowed to say anything. You're not even allowed to bring your personality into the room, which, you know, is not really the way that we practice. But the idea is kind of true in that if I put too much of myself in the room, then they don't have, uh, I guess, a, a blank slate for them to put their stuff onto. And then I'm doing them a disservice. Yes. Yes. I think very classically, we think of blank slate of that. I'm going to be totally stone-faced. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to, you know, um, and that that's a shame, right? That that is really the only way to think about it. And the whole, it's, you know, the funny, annoying trope that is that you ask a, a question of your therapist, right? Of like, Hey, where do you live or whatever it is? And like, well, huh, I wonder why you want to know, right? Which is sometimes the most annoying thing a patient wants to hear. But it's totally, because yeah. the more <laughs> of our self, the more of our personal selves that we bring in the room, the less space there is for that patient, that person sitting with us. And that the and at the end of the day, I don't want any of my patients worrying about me or needing to do that type of work. That the focus that focus, that 45 minutes is purely theirs, right? Yeah. And that's not to say, certainly my patients, some some patients know some stuff about me. I will never readily answer though. I always do want to do this. I, I wonder what it would feel like to know that about me. I wonder, I wonder why you want to know. Because again, if we're going to tap into their unconscious mind, there is the work isn't about me answering it. It's about them reflecting on why is it important for them to know that about me? Yeah. And something to keep in mind about anytime we ask a question is sometimes we have to ask, what is the question behind the question, which is what we're doing yeah. in the room. But yeah. also, you know, if someone is trying to use these ideas in their own personal life outside of the therapy room to start thinking about why am I asking this question? What am I really wanting to know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All, all of this, all of this way of thinking is so applicable to outside of the clinical. Space. Yeah. 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 Just in the interest of time, I had one more thing that I really wanted to ask you yes. because it is, um, it's not a foundation of analysis, but it's something that we talk about very often is the idea of attachment. So just pretty generally, cause I know that there are so many different schools of thought and so many different ways we can talk about this, but what is attachment? How is your, someone's original attachment um, significant for their healing process or, or significant in general? Yeah. 
So it's a huge, huge, huge topic that sorry to scholars, drop a bomb with like I three know. minutes left. <laughs> <laughs> that, but like scholars will spend their whole lives looking at just this. Attachment is essentially how we interact, how we feel we can connect with other people in our lives. It definitely starts with our primary caregivers, our formative experiences with um, again, maybe it's mom and dad, maybe it's uh grandma and grandpa, maybe it's foster care, right? And um you know, we're not going to go into secure attachment, insecure, like all of that, but that our formative experiences of how we can attach to people, can we trust them? Can they be there for us? Can, can, do I believe that they take me in and listen to me and want to know about my mind has huge implications on how I then take that into my life as I age and how I attach to friends, how I attach to my significant other, how if I was a parent, like take uh, how I attach to my child, right? And and you know, if we're thinking about it in a clinical sense, how how attached can are you then to your therapist, right? Like what is that a type of attachment? Oh, that's there? a big so, one. Yeah. I know, and I know you know this too, or, or like in your practice, that there are some that are so attached. There are some that are too afraid to be that to get too close is so terrifying. Um, and all of that is just, you know, stuff to explore with them. Yeah. And you know, the way I see attachment is usually how are things going now in my life right now? So you know, if I'm dating, what's going on with my dating life or my friends, and then we can use that to try to understand our original attachments. And the significance in that is to try to better understand how we attach to people today so that we can do it in a healthier way. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Exactly. And again, once again, can absolutely happen outside of a clinical space that you can just reflect on that. Yeah. So I think, you know, just reiterating that point that a lot of these things we're talking about are specific to analytic therapy. But is there a way that we can use these in our personal life? And I know we've been talking about it. So I guess this is a pretty leading question that it's yes, but maybe expand on it a little bit more (laughs) in that, you know, these ideas, can you use them? How can you use them in your personal life without, you know, without talking about the therapy room? Wouldn't it be funny if right now I just said no? (laughs) (laughs) No, you can't. Liar. Um, no, no, no. I know. It's such a lie. You know, like you said, we've talked about so much of it. It is just a way of of thinking deeper about your life. Are you going to do it 100% of the time every day? Heck, no, you're not. I don't do that because I don't have the energy. And sometimes I just need to go to the grocery store. But uh, but it you can journal. You can sit and think about more of your impulses. You can have these conversations actually with trusted friends of how they see you, how they attach to you. Do they have a transference with you? What is your transference with them, right? That all of this can be done in your own personal life. And I think with all analytic thinking can be done in like bite-sized chunks because it can be, it takes a lot of energy, right? And it can be pretty overwhelming. So of if there are just few moments and maybe you're not somebody who journals or something like that, but if there are just moments when you're taking a walk and you want to reflect a bit more, it is such an incredible gift to yourself to think more deeply about your own mind. I can't, I honestly, I can't think of like a better thing to do for yourself. Yeah, I totally agree. Again, totally unbiased, but agree. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I really appreciate it. 
Thank you so much for taking me. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right. Talk next time. Thanks so 